0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, today is the last day of our Gospel According to John series. Uh, This is part 30. (laughs) We made it. (laughs) Good job, all of you. Uh, I want to begin in John chapter 20, uh, just read to you 30 and 31, uh, and I won't, this isn't my sermon passage, but it reminds us of, of John's own stated purpose in writing his gospel. Uh, so he says this in John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, uh, which are not recorded in this book, uh, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's John's stated purpose. Uh, And and so John's motivation is that we would come to know and to see the character of who God is. And then in seeing the character of Christ, we would believe and find life in his name. Uh, And I believe that's a really appropriate uh, message for us. Because the reality is, is this gospel, the gospel of John, has carried us through what has been a crazy year in our world, right? We had no idea a year ago uh, all the things that would come to pass in 2017 between hurricanes and mass shootings with increasing frequency, uh, Brexit starting to happen, uh, the great American eclipse and all the craziness around that, uh, travel bans, Charlottesville, the list could go on and on. It's been a wild year. Uh, But in the midst of all this, John has provided us with a foundation on which to stand. And a steady reminder that Jesus is Lord over all of creation. And then he has also invited us then to see and to participate in God's new creation, and so, yes, he wants us to, to believe in Jesus and find life in his name. But the nuance he provides to that throughout the entire uh, gospel is, is that uh, what Jesus is doing is he's beginning a new creation, inviting us uh, to participate in it. And, and as such, he sits over Lord as, as Lord over all of that creation. And if you will allow me just a bit of a sidetrack in order to clarify what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord, I think it's really, really important. Saying Jesus is Lord is not the same as saying God is in control. Uh, when, When Christians say God is in control, what we often mean, or at least what people hear, is that God did this. And and I just want to uh, I, I feel a responsibility as your pastor to help help lead us and guide us in the way that I believe is right, and I would want to say to you that this this statement God is in control is bad theology, and can also be morally dangerous. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean. Uh, it, it's bad theology because God's sovereignty is not a controlling sovereignty. Uh, God is not up there causing you to be hurt or causing pain in your life in order just to teach you a lesson. Uh, I believe that that's a misunderstanding of the nature and character of God. And then so so it's bad theology, but but saying God is in control is also morally dangerous because it can be used to either manipulate people or get you off the hook when we do something stupid. (laughs) This is meant to be a little bit lighthearted, even though it seems heavy. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, Glad you're here. Let me give you some examples. If, if something happens that uh, a Christian likes, let, let's say the results of an election, and then other Christians don't like, uh, then saying God is in control can be a way of saying, God did this, this is his will, so you better get on board. On the other hand, if we uh, sometimes make dumb decisions, which we all do, sometimes we make dumb decisions and then we're living with the consequences, but we're tempted to exonerate ourselves of any responsibility by shrugging our shoulders and saying, God is in control. Or how about this? How many times have you been in a place of pain and a fellow Christian has come to you? Or, or, or sometimes we do this with folks who aren't even uh, claimed to be Christians and we say, uh, in the midst of their pain, we say, God is in control. The truth is, I, I think that this phrase is, is just dangerous and has, a lot, has done a lot of damage through the years. And so instead, the confession of the church is not historically God is in control, but rather the confession of the church historically and today is this, Jesus is Lord. And those are not the same thing. Saying, Jesus is Lord, means that we recognize the lordship of Christ over all things, which is to say that that God is gathering up all of the things that happen in our life, from the beautiful to the tragic, and he's working then to redeem them. That's what we mean when we say, Jesus is Lord. God is not controlling or determining all things, but rather he is sovereign over all things, working to redeem them. Do you see the difference? It's a really, really important distinction. And so the confession of the church is Jesus is Lord, not God is in control. Let me bear down on this a little bit more. Saying Jesus is Lord is a confession that the body of Christ consists of all people from all nations. And so as Christians, our allegiance belongs only to Christ and his kingdom, not any particular nation state. Saying that Jesus is Lord means that our worship, our obedience, and our allegiance all belong to the Lamb who was slain, the one crowned with thorns, the one enthroned on the cross, and the one now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Are you with me? And so the confession of the church is not God is in control. The confession of the church is that Jesus is Lord. And as the people of God, we are invited then to bear witness to that in the world. We are a commissioned people, just as the disciples were commissioned. Uh, We are a commissioned people. And that's really what I want to focus on today. We've we've spent a lot of time leading up to John chapter 20. Uh, We talked about John 21 when we talked about John 19. And so I wanna end our message today, I wanna end our series today uh, with talking about the sending passage from the gospel of John. Uh, so thank you for allowing me that little sidetrack. Let's finish this series, shall we? (laughs) I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm gonna be in John chapter 20, uh, verses 19 through 23, and uh, as has become our habit, I will say this is the word of God for the people of God, and you can respond with the the, uh, response of thanks be to God. Uh, John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19 through 23, says this, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Now after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. There are two key parts of this passage. As the Father has sent me, And then I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says. You know, in the beginning, if we're we're ever going to talk about Scripture, it's always good to start in the beginning. Uh, So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created humankind in his image. And he invited us to rule over all of creation as stewards of his rule. That is to say that we, uh, from the very first day, are called to bear witness to the loving rule of God in the world. That's our job. That's what we are to do. But very, very early in the story, we rebelled against God because we thought that we could do a better job of ruling than God could. And so our rebellion against the ways of God had certain consequences. It brought sin and death into the world. And just as we talked about last week, it wasn't just death, but it was death and all of his friends, the ways of death. And so early on in the story of our lives, we've made a mess of things, sin, death, and evil run rampant, but God in his love does not abandon us. But rather what he does is he raises up a people and he makes them a nation and calls them Israel and he enters into covenant with them covenant is this relational agreement. This this uh, It's not a contract, but it's rather uh, a way of saying that I will emphasize the relationship. I will stay faithful to this relationship always. They enter into covenant with Israel. And then the nation of Israel, that is the people of God, what they, what they do is, is they don't they don't show unwavering faithfulness to God. Read your Old Testament and what you find is that they waffle back and forth uh, between faithfulness to God and then disobedience and unfaithfulness. And they often, as a result, they often find themselves oppressed and underfoot. And so uh, since they become an oppressed people, and, and sometimes as you, you see that they're, they're even waffling back and forth from being oppressed to being the oppressor. But in the moments when they are oppressed and underfoot, what they do is they long for a Messiah who will come and rescue them from the oppression and from the occupying powers of the day. And so they find themselves, the very people of God, the nation raised up by God himself, by Yahweh, they find themselves in deep, deep longing for a rescuer, a Messiah. And so God, in his faithfulness, And in his love, sends a savior, the Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and rescues Israel in a very specific time, in a very specific place. And he comes as we read our New Testaments. What we find out is that he comes proclaiming a coming kingdom. And if you hear with the words of Israel, if you hear those words with the ears of Israel, what you might hear is surely he is talking about establishing Israel as the world's top dog. That now, rather than being underfoot, we will be the ones stepping on people. The world's top dog. This is what they heard when he, Jesus comes proclaiming a coming kingdom. and But he also comes performing miracles. And so the, the, Israel must have thought, if he can control the wind and the waves and he can heal our bodies, then surely he is the one powerful enough to bring Israel back to its old glory once again. But he also comes proclaiming something quite curious. He comes proclaiming a new law. A new law of his coming kingdom. Things like, go the extra mile, live a life of generosity, and offer forgiveness to your offenders. Surely Israel thought those rules are to be followed only when dealing with people who are in our own club. And so Jesus comes as the one who is sent, as the Father has sent me. He does come and he rescues Israel but not in the ways that anyone expected. You see, throughout the Gospel, John wants us to see uh, that Jesus' rescue, Jesus' salvation was much larger than the nationalistic agenda of Israel. And so what Jesus does is he provides rescue, but instead of establishing Israel as the world's next top dog, he actually establishes the kingdom of God. And it's, and it's a kingdom that originates in the heavenly realm and is distinct from any earthly kingdom, before it or after it. And and he certainly comes with great power, but instead of using his power to kick Roman butt, (laughs) what he does is he uses his power to defeat sin by way of his own death. And he does, in fact, come proclaiming the new law of his coming kingdom. But it isn't a law that is written on stone, but rather it's a law that is written on our hearts by the Spirit of God. And, in fact, as the people of God will come to learn, it isn't just rules and laws of governing the ways in which the people of God relate to one another, but actually what God wants to do is he wants to provide new ways that his people would relate to the entire world. So Jesus does come and he rescues Israel from oppression. He comes as the Messiah for a very specific time and in a very specific place and he rescues them and it is good news for the people of God. Their longing has been, has been answered. In fact, what we do during Advent is Advent is for us both a looking back and a looking forward. We look back to celebrate the coming of Christ, the first Advent of Christ that he has come as Israel's Messiah and Savior. But we also join Israel in their longing and in their anticipation for a Messiah to come once again and make all things new. And so Advent is very much a recognition that as the people of God, we are sandwiched in the middle. (laughs) And that's what that's really what advent is all about. And so Jesus does come to free them from oppression, but he doesn't free them from the oppression of Rome. What he does is he frees them from the greater oppression of sin and death. And he does come and he rescues them, but he doesn't rescue them from the occupying powers of the day. Rather he rescues them from the principalities and powers you see this? Do you see what's going on in the story of Jesus as we read our Bibles? We are invited on this journey of God raising up a people, raising up a nation, this nation longing for a Messiah. God sending the the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer to come in a specific time, in a specific place to provide specific uh, rescue from the oppression. But it's So so yes, it's that, but it is also so much more. You see, it isn't just for a specific time and place, but it is for all time and all places. You see, the mission that Jesus was sent on is far larger than the people of Israel had ever imagined, and I, I dare say that sometimes we even imagine and so Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection from the grave, right? He has, he has been crucified on the cross. He has won our salvation and now he has, he has entered into death and remember how we talked about that he enters into even solidarity with us even to the point of death. He enters into solidarity with us even unto death and then having entered death he defeats it by way of resurrection and now the whole world is brand new like something major happened. (laughs) And the people of God and Israel and all of those who had recognized the Messiahship of Christ are looking around going, whoa, what happened? (laughs) Or something like that. (laughs) Right? I mean, something big just went down. And so Jesus, in his sending of the disciples after his resurrection, says, as the Father has sent me, And loaded with that is this whole history of Israel and the longing of the Messiah and all that Jesus has done. And then he says something that absolutely must have blown their minds. He turns it back on them and he says, so I am sending you. To which the disciples said, wait, what? (laughs) As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus has done the work. He has accomplished and achieved salvation. He, a, has a, he has accomplished their rescue. And now what he is inviting his disciples to do is to implement his rescue in the rest of the world right, the rescue was not just in this specific time and place, it was that, it is that, but it was so much more, and so the, the invitation of Jesus to the disciples is to say, take this rescue that was for a specific people at a specific time and a specific place, but it was much larger than that, there was something more going on, take that and begin to implement it and work it out into the rest of the world, so that as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, are you catching it? And what I want, to, I want us to hear and understand today is that the invitation to the disciples here that we read about in Gospel of John applies to us just the same. That this isn't a story that's disconnected from our own lives. It isn't a story that, oh, it happened back then, so it doesn't matter. But rather, this is the story in which we find ourselves. And I would also say to you this, the relationship of Jesus accomplishing the rescue and then his disciples, including us, implementing this rescue in the world is the same relationship that a composer has to the orchestra who is performing his piece or her piece. So the composer, listen to this, the composer achieved the writing of the music. They wrote it down. In their genius, they could hear it in their head. And then they could translate all those sounds that they heard in their head into notes on a page. But that work, that accomplished a work, is not implemented until an orchestra performs the piece. And so it is with us. Christ has achieved the rescue of all mankind from sin and from death and all of his friends. And now we are invited to show the world what that looks like and what that sounds like. Are you with me? It's a tremendous invitation. And in fact, I would say to you that this even gives us a sense of the work of the church, the work that the church is called to. If we recognize this level of sending, if we recognize this depth of sending, then we recognize this is the work that the the church is called to. We are called to proclaim the good news of rescue from sin and death. We are called to live out God's new law of the kingdom, which, by the way, Jesus outlines in the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) Right, Jesus pours out all of these new laws of his new kingdom, and then but and it's off and it's it's given to us in the Sermon on the Mount. But how many times have you read the Sermon on the Mount and just be like, "Is Jesus nuts? He must not know how the world works." I mean, Jesus is like, I mean, he's a good teacher, but he's a little bit idealistic. He needs to be a little more grounded. Like, you know, don't don't be so heavenly that you're no earthly good. (laughs) Sometimes we're tempted to think that of Jesus, right? But what we learn over time is that when Jesus gave us the new laws of his coming kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, he was actually serious. And when he said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, go the extra mile. Those are the ways that life works best. And so on one hand, we're tempted to take the new laws of the coming kingdom and say, oh, and just kind of write them off wholesale. Jesus is too idealistic. On the other hand, if we're willing to take them seriously, we might say this is how life works best and and this is how we're to treat people uh, in our own club who are in our tribe, who are in the body of Christ. But then I think maybe we'll learn just like Israel learned that actually when when Jesus is outlining these things, this isn't just like instructions for how we're to relate to one another, but actually how the people of God are to relate to the entire world. so, we recognize that all of these things kind of give us a sense of the work that the church is to be about. That we are called to proclaim the kingdom of Christ over and above all national agendas. I went back and forth about this next part of the sermon. <laughs> if you go back and forth, you should never do it, but I've just made a habit of going back and forth and always doing it. So, um, so let's, just, let's go here together. Uh, hear my pastoral heart. So at the risk of being too upfront, I want to read a tweet that I came across this week. I did not tweet this. This is not my tweet. Let's Let's make sure that's understood. But it's from David French. He says this. He says, If only a community of people who knew deep, eternal truths about the dignity of men and women and the Creator's vision for human sexuality they could really step forward right now with a message of life and hope. But unfortunately, they've got an Alabama Senate race to win. That was the tweet. Now, I understand that there's, uh, in tweets, there's no room for nuance, there's no room for discussion, uh, but I think that this tweet in particular illustrates how many people see the evangelical church nowadays. And and I would want to say this. Uh, To the degree that any church becomes all about partisan politics is the degree to which that church begins to miss the point and isn't faithfully bearing witness to the kingdom politic. I want to say that again, that to the degree that any church becomes all about partisan politics is the degree to which that church begins to miss the point and isn't really bearing witness to a kingdom politic. Remember, when we say Jesus is Lord, what we, what we mean is that Jesus is Lord over all of creation and that the body of Christ exists in all nations, in all the world, under a single king, under a single headship who is Christ. Uh, the, the scriptures calls him the cornerstone. And so our allegiance and our worship and our obedience all belongs to the kingdom of Christ and Christ alone. Now some of you will say aloud amen to that. Others of you are already composing your email to me saying that I shouldn't be so political. But I think that we can all agree on this. That our vocation as sent ones is really, really difficult to navigate. Amen? Because the reality is is that people from all walks of life, will come to faith in Christ and will then have differing opinions about things like politics, partisan politics, Republican, Democrat, Independent, this, that, policy, all of these things, social issues, it it is good for the people of God to land in different places there. That's healthy. What isn't good is if we take our particular viewpoint and sanctify it as the only way that God sees things. And so, the point I'm trying to make, and again, I want you to hear my heart. The point I'm trying to make is that living out our commission as sent ones is really, really difficult work. It's difficult. It's nuanced in a complicated world which is why the next part of the scripture is so, so important. Because Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, yeah, we get to that. We understand the history. So I am sending you. And we're like, whoa, I am not up to the task. Right? I won't won't ask for a show of hands, but I'll raise my hand. I don't feel up to the task as a sent one, commissioned in the world, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the defeat of sin and evil, right? I don't feel qualified for that. And then this, the very next thing. And so he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Come on, church. If we are going to do our job faithfully as the sent ones of God, we need the Spirit of Christ, amen? We need the Spirit of God to lead us. We need the Spirit of God to fill us. We need the Spirit of God to give us wisdom and discernment. And here's what I would love to see. I would love to see Christians earnestly seeking the Spirit of God for direction in these difficult and complicated times. I would, love to, I would love to see us do our best to tune our hearts and our lives and our ears to his voice so that we might walk in step with him. I would love us to be open and sensitive enough to the spirit that the spirit would move us if necessary from our traditionally held viewpoints and opinions, and that the spirit, we would allow the spirit to shake us from our comfort zones into greater Christ-likeness. Well, I didn't get as many amens on that, but that's okay. Okay. <laughs> Right, it's like, it's like if we are going to do this job faithfully, we can't do it in our own strength, we can't do it in our own wisdom, and we certainly can't do it with our best opinions. And sometimes we stick out our chest and we kind of walk real cocky-like and we, and we say, this is the only way it is. And let me tell you, you can hold your opinion strongly. I do. <laughs> but can we hold our opinions strongly while maintaining a gentleness of the Spirit? That's what I long for in the church now. Could two Christians who don't agree on policy or who don't agree on candidates or who, are, are, who embody the political divide, could they get together with the spirit among them and just have a conversation and seek the heart of God together? I would hope so. One of the things I've tried really hard in my time in this church to do is to form a community where people from all spectrums can worship together. And if you've heard me preach for any amount of time, you know that when it comes to eschatology, that's study of the end times, I've got a particular flavor that I like, that I think is biblical, and that I preach with confidence. But well, that doesn't mean you have to agree with me to be part of this church. And, and hopefully, we would have some people that that don't land on the same side of every issue in our culture. And that's okay. And in fact, I would say that's a win. I've tried really hard to form just that community that that no one would feel ousted or or uncomfortable or out because of their views. But rather, we could all come together on Sunday mornings, seek the face of Christ, and claim and, and proclaim our allegiance belongs to the kingdom of God. That's my, because that's what I think, well, that's what I think heaven's gonna look like. If you think God is gonna take all diversity out of heaven, you got another thing coming. What heaven is going to be, what God's new creation is going to be, is diversity with perfect unity. And that's a beautiful picture. And I've tried really hard to form that kind of community and do what I can but I long for the people of God to, to allow the gentleness of the Spirit to permeate our conversations with one another, even in our disagreements, because it's perfectly, perfectly okay to disagree about something. But the fruit of the Spirit is not present when we demonize one another. John is a genius. Um, We've talked all year about how there's just like, just like an onion. You can just peel back the layers, layer after layer after layer of meaning. And, and it's almost a bottomless pit of, of meaning and significance and symbolism and metaphor in the Gospel of John. And, and, and it's going on here. Uh, John is doing something very particular when he says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He's, he's calling us back with the word uh, ruah which means spirit or wind or breath, the wind of God breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same word, it's the same action described in the creation narrative. That the wind of the spirit, the wind of God went over all of creation, speaking creation into being. Again, that doesn't talk at all about how, uh, but more about who and why. So I I would say this, having that in mind, I would say this, if, if we are going to be agents of new creation, we need the breath of God that called creation into being to move over us and empower us. And we need his creative wisdom and power to move through us so that we can faithfully bear witness to God's new creation in the world. And I wish there were a magic formula. I wish there were a blue pill that we could hand out at the doors. Take your blue pill and receive the Holy Spirit today. But there is no magic formula. There's no blue pill. But the tried and true way of connecting your heart to the Spirit of God is personal prayer and devotion, along with corporate worship. Both in balance. If it's only corporate worship, come to Sunday morning and then never do anything else throughout the week, never connect with God, that won't be enough to truly connect our hearts to the Spirit of God. If it's just me and Jesus, and I don't need the church, then I don't think that's God's best either. It's a both and. Gathering together with his people to hear the word of God proclaimed, to have an opportunity to sing our hearts to God to be shaped by gathering around the table. And then being sent out. Part of our goal every Sunday morning is to send you out. Now go and be kingdom people. And then like, Wednesday hits, right? Like hump day and you're like, I cannot do it anymore. I need some church in my soul. I know that all of you are looking forward to Sunday by Wednesday. I know that's the truth, right? But like, why every seven days? Because I need it? I'll bet you do too. To come and be encouraged and lifted up to allow the Spirit of God some space in my life to work and to form and to shape so that I might go out into the world into my workplaces and neighborhoods and do that and now I'm a sent one and then I'm a gathered one and then I'm a sent one and then I'm a gathered one. Sent gather, sent, gather. This is the pattern that will connect us to the Spirit of God in our lives. And if I, oh, if I go out and I'm sent, but I never come back to gather, my soul becomes dry. But if all I do is gather, and I never am sent, then I wonder what's the point? It's a both and. And I want to leave us, I want to conclude the series by just reminding us, that as the Father has sent Christ, so Christ is sending each of us into the world. But don't do it on your own, but let us depend on the Holy Spirit and connect our hearts to him and seek him together and allow the fruit of the spirit to bear fruit in our lives. Amen. Amen. Let's say a word of prayer and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, um, thank you Thank you for your goodness to us, for your love poured out, for all the ways in which you demonstrate consistently your love for us. And thank you, God, for meeting us in this place, that we might be lifted up and encouraged and then sent out. God, help us. May our hearts, each and every one of us, be connected to your Holy Spirit. God, we confess today that it can be hard. There are so many distractions, things going on in our life and in the world, and the thought of of taking time out to try to connect with you sometimes just feels so alien to our lives. Uh, We confess that today, but God, in your faithfulness, would you meet us right where we're at today today, throughout the week as we connect with you and as we carve out space and time. God, would you be faithful to meet with us? And then in the strength and power of your spirit, may we faithfully bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We certainly don't feel qualified. We don't feel up to the task. But God, be with us. God, help us. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.